Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking today to Dr. Antonia Witt about her book titled Undoing Coups, The African Union and Post-Coup Intervention in Madagascar, which came out in 2020 with Bloomsbury. Um, This is a really interesting book because obviously coups are a pretty significant problem that affect rather a lot of countries, as I know Antonia will talk about. Um, But understanding them, particularly in the African context, within the context of um, the African Union, of continental norms and politics, um, is really quite relevant for understanding sort of events since 2000 and very much things that are happening now. Um, And so this book does a great job of kind of giving us that big picture context, explaining those developments over time, and centering it through a particular case study that helps us see what all of these things actually look like in practice. Um, And not only does it do that, it does it through an interesting case study. Um, I don't think it's hugely controversial to say that Madagascar is maybe not the most well-known African country in terms of recent politics. Um, So this serves that purpose as well of making that case um, and what happened there more um, visible and accessible to a wider audience. So for all of these reasons and more, Antonia, I'm very happy to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Could you start us off before we dive into the book itself? Tell us a little bit about sort of yourself and how you came to write this book. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, as I said, first of all, really, thanks, you, thanks for, for having me on for this opportunity to talk about uh, about the book and um, and its sort of relevance also maybe for, for, for current uh, developments on the continent. Um. Yeah, my name is Antonia. I'm a head of the research group African Intervention Politics at the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. Um, and I'm mainly working on, on African uh, regional institutions and their impact on the politics and, and order on the continent. And I think this is also um, uh, where this book comes from. It, it essentially builds on my PhD thesis, in fact, uh, which I wrote at the University of Leipzig uh, in Germany under the supervision of uh, of Engel and uh, Klaus Dingbert, who is now in St. Gallen in Switzerland. But the very sort of initial idea or inspiration for this research actually came from practice. Uh, and that was when I was working as a trainee at the EU delegation to the African Union in Addis Ababa. Um, and that was sort of just after I had finished my, uh, my, 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 my studies. At that time, um, I knew from the literature about the African Union's anti-coup norm, that is a norm that, or a legal norm, in fact, that prohibits uh, African states to be ruled by governments that come to power uh, unconstitutionally. So, in other words, it's a norm that outlaw, outlaws uh, coup d'etats. But this anti-coup norm, it doesn't only sort of prohibit coups, uh, it also gives the AU a mandate to bring the respective country back to constitutional order. So, at the time when I was working for the uh, EU delegation, Several of these efforts to re-establish constitutional order in, uh, in African states, and actually in several African states, um, took place at that time. Um, and one of them was, uh, in fact, uh, the case of Madagascar. So when I was working there, I observed that in the diplomatic circles uh, at the AU itself, there was a great uh, commitment to this anti-coup norm, its ideals, um, uh, and sort of the, yeah, the general aims about it. Um, And there was a great sense that this norm is an important instrument at the AU's disposal and a sign 
also of the organization's greater concern for democratic governance, for constitutionalism, uh, etc. And this actually also pretty much matched uh, the discourse in the academic literature at that time, which read the AU's anti-coup norm as part of a greater concern for uh, um, democracy promotion or protection, in fact, um, and yeah, in, in this sort of liberal uh, liberal way. Um, and this sort of taken for grantedness uh, in, in both ways, sort of in the in the normative way, but also in the in the functional way, kind of made me suspicious. And I was that that was the beginning of uh, of this journey. I think I was wondering what what these efforts uh, to which everyone seemed to attach so much importance, what these efforts actually do. What does it actually mean to to re-establish constitutional order after a coup d'état? And what does it do on the ground, really? How does it affect politics and order uh, in the country's concern? So these were the questions uh, that really um, sort of triggered me at the beginning of this uh, of this research, and that sort of took me along uh, until it ended up in in the book and being coups. Um, now, as you said in the in the in the, in the introduction in, in 2012, actually when I started this research, um, coups were still considered somehow as something of a uh, if if dark a past a history of the continent and and yeah rightly today we look at it quite differently we uh, we see that this assumption of the um, uh, yeah assumed African politics to be um, sort of institutionalized and 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 democratized um, to be wrong um, and actually in this decade which is only two years uh, old so since 2020 until today. Um, we have seen almost uh, as many coups as in the previous two decades each. So that really shows coups are an important aspect of today's uh, political life on the continent. And, uh, and and they are clearly also an important part of, of African Union politics uh, today. Um, so, yeah, all these uh, recent coups as well activated the IU's anti-coup policy and also the organization's efforts to undoing uh, coups on the continent. So with that sort of the multi multiple strands really that brought you to this and that continue its relevance, um, there is kind of, as you've sort of hinted at, the, the sort of obvious question of, well, if there are multiple coups happening, what made you decide to focus on Madagascar for the primary um, case for your research? Yeah, that's a good question. And as you said in the, in the introduction, it's not the most obvious case maybe uh, also for an English or an, yeah, an English speaking uh, audience or a an English um, published book um, because yeah there is little literature on uh, on Madagascar in fact and in the anglophone sphere so to say um actually initially I wanted to work comparatively uh, on sort of two case studies but then I realized that um, the way I wanted to study these cases really requires delving uh, deeply into each case um, so that yeah I probably wouldn't be able to do justice to this uh, kind of standard in a, in a comparative study. So I decided to um, drop one case and I'm not going to mention which one it was and to concentrate on just one and this case was um, uh, was Madagascar, uh, which to me really allowed me to, to, to explore this rich archive of empirical material to which I had uh, access to. Um, this, in, in, in my case, really meant um, that the book is based on several months of, of field research in Madagascar itself, um, mainly in, in, in Antananarivo, because uh, most of the interventions sort of took place uh, in the capital. It reflects this, this sort of concentration on the on capital politics, if you want, um, of, of these post-coup interventions. But beyond Madagascar, I also researched in, in Addis Ababa, the headquarters of, Af- of the African Union, in Gaboron, at the headquarters of the Southern African Development Community, SADC, which also played an important role in this post-coup intervention in Johannesburg, in Paris. So I really tried to, in a way, follow the various actors that were involved in uh, undoing uh, the coup in Madagascar, re-establishing constitutional order, and to understand the logics and ways in which they approached the situation. It's based, like the, 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 the book is based on, on uh, interviews with uh, all these various national and international actors, the Malagasy negotiating parties, civil society actors, journalists, but also the international uh, mediators, representatives of 
um, international and regional organizations, etc. Um, and 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 I complemented that with um, with the material from the Malagasy parties themselves, uh, letters, foreign correspondences um, between them, and with the mediators, official documents, or or newspaper articles. Um, so that maybe explains the um, the the sort of empirical um, breadth of the um, of the study. But yeah, it doesn't explain why Madagascar. So I've <laughs> some three short answers uh, to that. Why, from all um, cases that I could have looked into, I chose to study Madagascar in particular. Um, the first reason really is that it is the and was then and still is actually the um, longest lasting post-coup intervention. It, it lasted or it took almost five years to re-establish constitutional order. Um, on average, these post-coup interventions take about 20 months uh, until uh, constitutional order uh, is re-established. So I, I considered this as an ideal case study to really understand the politics involved in post-coup interventions, to really unpacking this the black box of actors and processes involved in undoing uh, coups and in re-establishing constitutional order. That was the, the first reason. The second uh, is that um, by then, Madagascar was actually one of um, just two cases um, that were dealt with twice under the AU's uh, anti-coup policy. Madagascar was already one of the first ones to be treated under this uh, norm in 2001-2002. So this situation kind of allowed me to have a a bit of a historical comparison, but also a reflection of how past experiences shape both a sort of interveners' practices and um, and 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 approaches, but also the perceptions or the trust on the part of the local parties. How previous experiences shape shape that as well. Um, that was also something that really made the, the case of Madagascar an important one to, to, to study. And the third aspect or reason really was that um, when I started researching it, the, the intervention was still ongoing. And I mean, there was a lot of debates about whether that's sort of helpful or not for research. Um, but in my case, it really was because it meant accessing the parties um, really while the negotiations were going on. Um, um, or sort of towards the end, um, in particular during my field research, to understand the sort of the, the, the closure of the transition and the reinstatement of the new government, etc., to to really follow and participate in a crucial part of this intervention, uh, sort of while it was going on, and that was something particular um, that other cases wouldn't have allowed me to do. Um, now, maybe just uh, one last um, uh, word on this sort of balancing between an in-depth case study and the sort of bigger picture story because I think this is often an a yeah a balancing act on something quite quite uh, um, sort of challenging to do to do justice to both and and I think I had the um, the um, the ambition to, to to provide something more than than just the in-depth case study but also say something about um, a bigger picture um, context in which this takes place um, so what, I, what I'm doing in the book is um, I have one chapter in which I discuss the experiences um, in or of Madagascar in light of um, um, all other post-coup interventions with the aim of showing that broader pattern in which these coup situations are dealt with under uh, the AU's anti-coup policy. So it, 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 it's an effort to, to try and show something more general about this policy and its aims and effects uh, in African states. Thank you for taking us through kind of the different reasons. I really appreciate the sort of combination of um, analysis and sort of relevance in terms of the content, but also really those practical considerations about timing and archives um, and interviews. Uh, I think they're quite often something that influences how we design our research projects. And it's helpful to kind of normalize and surface those pieces um, because there's no point creating a great research question that, you know, solves this amazing gap in the literature, helps us understand something better. And then there's no one around you can talk to. Um, so putting those pieces together is definitely key. And speaking very much of kind of that balancing between the case and the bigger picture, um, I'd love to sort of stay on that big picture level for a moment. And we've sort of referenced this African Union policy um, against coups, kind of. It doesn't really seem to be against coups. It's more about 
stopping the effects of coups or reversing the effects of coups. Um, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what this policy looks like and maybe briefly sort of how it developed? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The anti-coup uh, policy, is it against coups or is it just reversing coups? Um, it was it was adopted in, uh, at the um, African, at the, in fact, at the OAU summit in, in Lomé in, in the year 2000. So the Organization of African Unity, the African Union's predecessor, um, and African heads of state at that summit adopted this anti-coup um, norm, which is since then called, because of that summit, the Lomé uh, Declaration. Um, it was, after that, it was, um, it was sort of transformed into the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, and with this became a legally binding document that um, that is a sort of part of the African Union's uh, legal framework and, and the area of governance and, and constitutionalism. Now, what does this Lomé Declaration say? Um, it, it Basically, at that point, um, African heads of state and government um, said that coups or defined coups as an unacceptable and, uh, as they call it, anachronistic act, um, which was to them in contradiction with, with the organization's ideal to promote democratic principles uh, in, its, in its member states. So the declaration itself does basically three, three things. First, it defines um, shared political principles, but it actually does it in a more declaratory, uh, not in a sort of prescriptive way. It also certainly defines what counts as unconstitutional change of government and um, um, as the audience might sort of uh, uh, suspect that this uh, provoked a lot of debate and still does. So what do we consider as an unconstitutional change and what not? Thirdly, the, the anti-coup policy defines a reaction mechanism. That is how the OIU or now the African Union should respond to a coup situation. And here it specifically prescribed to condemn uh, the coup and to give the, the putschists up to six months to re-establish constitutional order. It, um, it, well, part of this was a sort of mandate to the, in particular, to the Secretary General of the back then OAU, which is now the president of the African Union's Commission, or the chairperson of the African Union Commission. That he or she should establish context to the, the contacts to the Putschists and exert uh, what the declaration says, discreet moral pressure on them to comply with uh, the, the organization's demand to re-establish a constitutional order. So this is how the declaration sort of sees the African Union working for um, the undoing of, of a given coup and the re-establishment of constitutional order. Now this um, burst of the um, anti-coup norm is clearly shaped by the politics of the time of the year 2000, especially of the wave of coups between 1997 and 2000. Uh, one of them, actually the, the coup in Sierra Leone in, in, in 1997, took place just uh, one or two days before the, the OAU summit in Harare, which then for the first time really uh, was that African heads of state publicly condemned a coup and promised the people of Sierra Leone to assist and uh, 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 sort of creating a, they, they, they um, assisting the re-establishment of constitutional order. Um, this was sort of the first self-commitment of African heads of state to um, to work for the uh, for constitutionalism in their member states and for sort of the promotion of democratic pr principles. If one wants to consider that as sort of part of democratic principles, um, and that was an important sort of yeah historical step uh, really in the. Um, in the history of the continental organization. Now, I think the timing explains the sort of urgency behind that, but it doesn't really tell us much about the motivation of those, those leaders at the, um, at the Lomé summit. Why did they actually um, uh, adopt such a norm, which was, which was obviously far-reaching in terms of, of giving the continental organization quite an, a sort of, invasive or potentially invasive mandate into the politics of its member states. So that, that isn't something uh, that sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the continental organization was very um, known for. Um, 
So it, it's an it it really was a bold step in in into the direction of a more sort of intrusive continental organization in political terms. So it is in a way um, surprising, and and this sort of surprising uh, um, step also provoked a quite diverge diverging interpretations in the in the academic literature about why uh, African heads of state decided to adopt such a far-reaching uh, norm. Um, one uh, sort of more positive uh, or sort of optimistic reading of it is that um, uh, sort of heads of state uh, or yeah heads of state uh, and government kind of showed a sign of collective effort to protect or promote democracy on the continent. That's the sort of the, the positive liberal uh, reading of it. Um, and the other more pessimistic reading of it is that. Um, the anti-coup norm is obviously also a way of protecting sitting uh, heads of state um, against a potential future putches. So it's actually a, a measure to, to um, secure, um, to, 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 yeah, for, for regime security rather than for promoting democratic principles. Um, one of the, the reasons for this sort of more pessimistic, pessimistic reading is is oftentimes that um, researchers quote. Um, um, Robert Mugabe is one of the sort of most um, visible and vocal advocates for this uh, norm, and um, and this is sort of the um, that shows the sort of ambiguity in, in understanding why this norm actually came about. Um, now, my in, in my book, I'm I'm sort of exploring a bit this birth and the development of this anti-coup policy and and the norm specifically based on. Archival uh, research that I did at the at the um, African Union headquarters and its its archives, and I showed two uh, things in particular. One is really this sort of multiplicity of actors uh, who are involved in driving this uh, this anti-coup policy and in promoting it internally within the organization, including quite importantly the um, the secretariat of the organization of African Unity itself or the. In fact, the secretary, the um, general, Secret, the secretary general, in particular, as sort of personally, as as one of the most sort of vocal uh, promoters for this idea of having having such an a continental anti-coup norm. Um, but I'm also showing that this was a hugely contested process. So there were multiple actors involved in it, but these multiple actors also had multiple motivations. So in fact, when I said at the beginning. Yeah, this positive and, and this more pessimistic reading of it, I guess, sort of, you know, it both are somehow right. Um, the, 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 this development or the, uh, the adoption of this norm was only possible because sort of both sides kind of worked together and had um, both sort of saw their own uh, ideals and interests uh, served with this anti-coup norm because it was open enough to be used as both a, an instrument to promote or protect democracy, but also one that, put, that could potentially be used to um, promote uh, sitting governments and, and, and uh, incumbent regimes. Um, so it's it really is a, the result of a compromise, and this compromise is, and that's a, a, so the second argument that I'm making in the book, this, this comp compromise is a very technical approach to undoing coups because it rides over much of the politics and sort of um, yeah, political questions that are involved in this idea of um, promoting um, constitutional order after a coup d'etat. It kind of rides over the political values about questions of what are the overall um, political aims of these uh, efforts, whose legitimacy should be taken into account, etc. And all these questions are sort of um, pushed aside because uh, it was sort of necessary to have this, um, uh, this kind of compromise between uh, quite different uh, actors within the organization to come up with this, um, with this norm in the first place. So one thing that I think um, is worth sort of making explicit and pulling out, and you do, of course, in the book, which is really helpful, is thinking about this um, sort of thing we've had lurking, right? Which is the idea of we've got a country with a coup, an internal event, and we've got this continental organization that brings different governments together. And there's some kind of obvious questions there around sovereignty and intervention and who exactly is allowed to do what. Um, and quite literally a question around sort of 
borders and who can go where. This comes up, you even spoke about in the research of kind of following the threads of things actually takes you literally away from Madagascar to Addis, to South Africa. Um, So I was really interested that in the book you talk about post-coup interventions as, quote, transboundary formations. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you mean by this and how this can help us sort of make sense of these compromises that you've just explained? Yeah, the the term transboundary formations um, actually comes from uh, Robert Latham and his colleagues in their 2001 book on intervention and transnationalism in Africa, um, which is a, um, a a volume that offers a sort of typology of different figurations or constellations of interventionism on the continent and seeks to describe um, their respective contributions to the making or unmaking of order and authority. Now, the, the transboundary uh, in, the, in the name really refers to the intersection of, of multiple forces of national, international, uh, local actors um, in one particular frame. And this frame, in my case, is the, the AU's anti-coup policy and the idea to re-establish constitutional order after a coup. Maybe it helps to understand sort of what the term does for my research when one compares it to sort of other um, alternative lenses through which um, one could also conceive post-coup interventions. Um, I have two sort of examples here that are quite prevalent in the um, in the literature. This is first um, mediation. These post-coup interventions are quite often described as mediation or sort of read and interpreted through the lens of mediation. Um, but uh, to me, conceptually, sort of, it, I, I understand why this is sort of a an, a, a way of, in which practitioners describe what they do, but it, as a concept or as a conceptual lens, it, to me, did not really match what I was sort of observing in terms of the actual practices that took place and, 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 and also the outcomes of it. There is often no interve- no invitation by the parties, which is a crucial uh, sort of definition um, or part of the definition of mediation. Um, and and the idea of mediation or of, of post-coup interventions being mediation kind of sidelines the fact that these are highly sort of political, but also highly prescriptive efforts. Um, and I'm, I might be sort of coming to that uh, um, in the later part of the interview. Um, the second sort of alternative term would be policy diffusion or norm diffusion. This is also a quite prevalent way in which um, the, the sort of post-coup efforts of the African Union and other regional organizations are, are interpreted. Um, to me, these lenses kind of underestimate the interactions and, and actually the crucial agency of actors other than the African Union that shape what it means to, to undo a coup or to re-establish constitutional order. So it, it pretends as if undoing coups is what the African Union does. And, and I think um, this is something that I'm trying to show in the book, that this um, this is a quite sort of short-sighted to assume that this is what the AU does. There's a multiplicity of actors, and in particular actors from the countries concerned, um, that are heavily part of this um, of this effort in, sort of in, in various ways. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, norm diffusion uh, frameworks are often quite uncritical in terms of of, of of sort of interpreting or understanding the outcomes. So I wanted to to um, approach it in a way in which I can understand what these um, what these interventions actually sort of do, what they are, and what they do in a way that reflects the multiplicity of actors, but that also reflects. Um, their sort of political character, their order and authority constituting aspects. And this is exactly what this idea of transboundary formations based on the work of of, uh, Latham and and colleagues uh, does. So I want to dive into that multiplicity of actors. Um, And this might be the trickiest question or the toughest question of the interview. Uh, In something like two minutes, who are the main actors on the ground in Madagascar that we need to know about in order to understand their interactions with the post-coup intervention? <laughs> that is indeed a tricky question, <laughs> in particular for two minutes. Um, 
and and I think we are already part of sort of we are already in the center of the of the problem in a way because um, what I describe in the book is um, to think of the situation in, in in Madagascar just sort of in early two thousand nine so when the situation which was labeled the, the the unconstitutional change of government when that happened um, to describe this as a much broader situation of sort of conflict and crisis. Um, which wasn't just the inter-elite um, problem, which then sort of became, you know, visible or seen as the coup d'état. So that's sort of um, something that uh, that is important for me to to, to underline that um, sort of the conflicts and the, the the issues that we see in a coup might not be sort of the only relevant um, societal political issues at stake at that moment. And taking this sort of bigger picture into account is important because it it helps us to understand and evaluate the kind of solutions that post-coup interventions offer. Um, they are usually quite um, focused on the sort of intra-elite conflict that is sort of the immediate setting around a situation which is then the coup. Um, this is also why I'm, I'm speaking in the in the book about. La crise malgache, which is the term that um, Malagasy's use to describe it, and and obviously um, it denotes quite different things for different people. But I'm using it um, deliberately and also sort of against um, um, the alternative, uh, which would be the coup in Madagascar. I'm using la crise malgache to, under, to to underline this multiplicity of of sort of conflicts and crises that shaped the the time uh, of um, uh, the the events that then became the coup. Now you asked for the sort of the protagonists, um, and those were, um, or the, this was sort of the situation. Early two thousand nine, um, um, there were rallies in uh, in Antananarivo and the capital against the president uh, Marc Rabaluman, um, who ruled the country, and um, who would these these debate these um, sort of rallies were fueled by quite um, politicized and. Um, publicly debated uh, scandals, which in the eyes of many Malagasy's exposed the greed and the irresponsibility of the uh, of the government in place, um, and which nourished uh, really this sort of political um, 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 disappointment with the, with the government uh, uh, and its sort of political and, and, and economic uh, policies. Against this, uh, there was the, the, the other protagonist, Anne Radzuel, um, who led the protest. He, he was uh, back then the young mayor of Antanarivo and uh, actually a former DJ. He, he really pre- represented a new kind of politics, a new kind of leader, young, ambitious, successful, um, but with a sort of populist promise that, um, you know, sort of really generally um, better times are ahead um, and that. Um, um, things would be uh, sort of everything basically would be better if if this um, uh, elite uh, would be replaced by something else and by a new generation. It was also this a big generational uh, aspect about this. So I'm talking about these two protagonists, but I'm doing this, and and they are obviously important. Uh, but I really want to sort of situate this into the broader discourses of and experiences of um, of crisis of of political. Um, uh, debates of 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 also um, urgencies to for 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 political or economic transformations that were shaping the island at the time. Now, um, in terms of events, um, the protests um, um, were actually sort of interrupted by the military, which stepped in and uh, forced Rabalaman uh, into exile to South Africa, and then installed uh, Radzuel as the president of the tr- tr- transition. And this was sort of the situation that. Um, then became the, the coup d'état uh, and the moment in which uh, the African Union and SADC and other international actors in France, of course, in particular, um, became part of the um, of the situation. Hmm. Well, I think you tackled that challenge quite well. <laughs> uh, so now that we kind of we know who what's going on, we know some of the main actors, um, we understand that it's not just about kind of these two particular people and who gets to be president. It's this much wider context of um, what is politics, who's it serving, what's the economic model of the country and what are the problems with it. Um, and it's also happening within this wider um, 
environment of kind of the African Union and what do we do about coups and who gets to decide things. Um, And all of this kind of comes together with this African Union um, intervention. Um, And there's a lot of different, you know, we've used the phrase multiplicity of actors, and I think it's really appropriate in this particular instance. So I was wondering if you could kind of move us a little bit, the kind of the next chapter, I suppose, in the story, um, which is sort of once all of these people are in the same place, right? The coup has happened. We've got these different parties. Um, now the AU has turned up. Um, mediation doesn't really actually sound particularly correct as soon as you read the book and get into the details of what happened um, because there is kind of this prescriptive aspect and there is sort of this like jockeying around. And one aspect I thought was really interesting was that it's not exactly organized and sort of it's not like the au comes in sits down and says right okay group a you make your case meanwhile group b listen group b refute it like it's not like a court of law or anything that straightforward um there's a whole bunch of kind of events happening on the ground and the equality of access or lack of equality to access to resources to knowledge to expertise to all sorts of things um really do seem to have quite an impact especially in this initial intervention period so i was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about what that looked like why that was what the implications were yeah yeah, it's it's true. Um, it is um, it from the outside at first, and especially if one sort of reads these official documents, it, it sounds as if these processes are well structured, and it's clear sort of who is driving what, and um, who is participating, and in, in which talks, and and what the aims are, and uh, what the sort of who structures the 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 uh, the overall conversation, and who is sort of the who is ultimately in charge of the entire process? So th- this is how it how it's presented, but in fact, um, in practice, this is quite uh, quite quite different. Um, you ha- you have a multiplicity of international actors, and and I think the case of Madagascar really was an extreme case in that sense uh, that you um, have this sort of sudden, uh, in a way, um, invasion of of sort of multiple international actors claiming to be in charge of of steering the process, of um, of sort of um, offering um, a mediation, um, uh, of um, establishing contacts between um, uh, channels, sort of between the different parties, etc. So you really had competition at the international level, which um, which definitely made it more difficult also for Malagasy parties to understand. So what is the situation we are in here, right? Um, because the most of the internationals sort of came with the attitude that yeah it's now sort of on the international side to to drive this uh, this process and to to get this back to order. Um, it's important to see that it's not only the the African Union but actually also SADC, um, uh, which was part of uh, of, of this um, uh, game or competition. Um, SADC uh, appointed uh, Joaquim Chisano, the sort of former president of uh, Mozambique. As lead mediator, and that definitely helped to sort out some of the sort of international confusion about it. But it's it's also important to to note that there is there wasn't just sort of a multiplicity of actors, but really also a multiplicity of sort of suggestions on how to resolve the situation, what what it would entail to re-establish constitutional order. There was a big difference between the way the French and the and the US. Um, we're approaching the situation. One was more um, sort of siding with uh, with Razuel, the Putschist um, president. Um, the other um, more in support of Ravaloman, actually wanting to kind of reinstall uh, him. Basically, um, so there was this big divergence, really, in terms of of um, um, how the, the different international actors wanted to see the situation to evolve, um, and that was eventually sort of at the international level, in a way. Um, resolved in, in, in a kind of it, it, it kind of converged in a compromise um, around uh, the idea that um, there should be a structured negotiation process among um, the so-called quatre mouvements. This is sort of the four called the four movements, um, which was the two arrivals, so Razuel and Ravaloman, um, and the two former presidents uh, Didier Razirak and uh, Safi Abeh, who were sort of at the time still alive. Um, and um, 
these four were supposed to sort of negotiate a transitional roadmap or charter and for an inclusive transition, which would then lead to um, the organization of elections. And then, yeah, these elections would mark sort of the, the return to constitutional order. So that was the <laughs> the way that uh, after resolving their own internal um, sort of issues, uh, the internationals uh, kind of agreed upon. Um, and again, this is sort of, it It, it might seem, you know, um, uh, convincing on paper. And it was it was actually quite a big diplomatic effort to actually um, ease these international tensions. But it didn't mean that uh, sort of this, um, yeah, that the Malagasy parties would be um, willing or able or both to play this book, which the internationals had written in a way um, for that process. So I, I discussed in the book um, that those who were kind of selected or um, or named uh, and envisaged as, as the negotiating parties, that they had quite different um, tangible and intangible resources to, to shape or to participate in that negotiation process and to actually act as negotiating parties to fulfill the role that they were um, imagined to fulfill from this uh, sort of international playbook. Um, and these sort of different in, in, in resources refers to financial means. Obviously, you have to have financial means to send representatives to these meetings. Sometimes they were take, like they took place outside of the of the island, um, so on on the you know mainland continent. That 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 obviously involves financial uh, resources. There were also linguistic resources. Once these meetings took place outside of Madagascar, they took place in an anglophone world. Um, in particular, when Sonic became more involved, um, the sort of the anglophone. Um, became more important, and th- this requires having people in your negotiating team uh, who are um, sort of fluent enough in English uh, to to actually negotiate. Um, um, uh, there were different relations to the mediator, and this is again a way in which I think is it's important to reflect on on sort of previous experiences, but also um, uh, networks to which these actors um, had access to. Um, so all these sort of put these four parties on quite different footings, but also made them quite different from how sort of negotiating parties are imagined, uh, you know, on paper or in mediation theory, etc. I don't think this is sort of a particular situation for for specifically not for Madagascar. Um, there is uh, there are obviously um, many examples in which sort of the theory. Um, uh, isn't uh, uh, fulfilled in you know 100% way, but I think it's it's a particular situation for these for sort of mediation or negotiations after coups, but because uh, a lot really takes place spontaneously um, in re- in really short time, and I mean it's different if you if you have a a mediation going on um, in a with uh, with sort of violent actors, et cetera, who have been sort of formed as, as group for, for a certain time um, um, or, or sort of parties have sort of institutionalized a certain structures. These um, parties were really set up super spontaneously. And oftentimes um, um, my, my interviewees actually sort of talked about it in a way that they said that um, even the term sort of being a mouvance this was what the internationals wanted us to be. Uh, we then had to sort of, you know, find the people that want to build with us a mouvance. So it's not that these were all kind of grown parties with with clear understandings of what that role would uh, would require them to do. Now, this is, I think, important in terms of understanding these dynamics, um, these different resources and 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 sort of situations that they had. Another aspect is really that. Um, they had quite different sort of necessities to, to uh, or they, they were they were differently sort of forced to 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 mediate to negotiate, and they had different things to take from the negotiation. It was clear that only one party, and that was Ratzuel, um, uh, so the the sort of president of the transition, the Putsch's president, only he and his sort of team had a special Trump, and that is the threat of withdrawal, because all the others only could gain from negotiations, whereas he could always say, I'm not willing to negotiate anymore. I'm doing this transition all by myself. And this is actually what happened eventually um, and, and why this sort of negotiation among the four mouvances um, eventually broke down because Brazuel decided to organize his own transition. 
them and to not no longer sort of negotiate continue negotiations and concessions to the other parties because there was little pressure for him to actually do so. So the power imbalances between the parties were were crucial um, and really diverged from sort of the ideal of a mediation uh, process. And what he did was actually to kind of um, organize his own transition to make it appear inclusive um, uh, and and sort of include parties willing to um, to, to, to actually organize this transition with him. And um, at some point he sort of um, got supported uh, with this and, and, and it was legalized or formalized in the SEDEC a roadmap for ending the crisis in Madagascar, but this isn't. Yeah, this this sort of wasn't the the result of a long negotiation process, but really something um, that was heavily driven by the by the purchased party uh, himself. Mm. Really interesting um, to sort of hear about those different dynamics. And of course, obviously, the book goes into much more detail than we're able to get into here. Um, so for listeners who are interested in that, um, the book go, has many other examples and kind of delves into it. Um, and I wanted to kind of, you know, now that we've gone a lot into some of the detail of what this looked like, um, one of the things that I found really interesting was, um, as you said, the international actors sort of had a playbook, kind of had an idea of how this would work and how the local actors would be organized and what they would want. Um, and one of the aspects of that was that the interveners had a really sort of narrow list of things to fix, right? As we've talked about at the beginning, there are they weren't coming in here to kind of go, okay, what's going to be the best solution politically? They were very much sort of trying to revert back to something, but in a very sort of specifically narrow way. Um, why kind of was it so narrow? And what impact do you think this restricted scope had um, in the actual sort of negotiations and what happened? Yeah, as you said, um, the, from an sort of international perspective, coups are a rupture to normalcy. Um, this is how the AU sort of generally, and I mean all the other international actors as well, kind of approach coup situations. This is why sort of the back to normal is um, uh, is, is sort of the first uh, first demand. And what does this normalcy mean? It means uh, re-establishing normal diplomatic relations. A coup, from an international perspective interrupts one of the basic um, rules of how the international system works because it, it builds on the mutual recognition of governments. Um, so once a coup happens, this uh, this sort of the system is interrupted, um, which means that the main aim is sort of to, re- to re-establish a situation in which uh, both sides, and this could be an organization and a government or sort of two governments, can recognize each other again on, on, on certain terms. So today there are certain terms, and these terms are um, sort of narrow political um, uh, demands on, uh, on constitutionalism and legality of how you should uh, sort of get to that government. Now, and, and, and sort of because of this, and, and this obviously sort of uh, completely is, is, you know, contradicts uh, understandings of legitimacy, etc., which might, uh, you know, be prevalent in the countries about which we talk. And, and in Madagascar, this was, was the case as well. So the normalcy um, um, that uh, was normal for internationals didn't feel too normal uh, and, and, and actually not acceptable to many Malagasis. And this is how this, uh, this sort of conflict between the international approach and, um, and sort of, uh, you know, what comes out in terms of demands and, and visions and ideas for change from within the countries, how this sort of conflict or contradiction comes about. Now, for the internationals, therefore, because the system is, 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 is structured in that way, from the, from the very beginning, it was clear that the end point of these negotiations was already set. It was the organization of elections and the establishment of a new government. Um, and, and, and by consequence, that meant that, meant that all sort of broader ideas of, of political, more structural sort of reform were postponed to a um, stage, so to sort of, yeah, a time after the reestablishment of constitutional order. In fact, the roadmap, um, that was signed between SADC and the Malagasy parties, uh, which sort of paved the way to, um, to, to the constitutional order. It explicitly prohibited the transitional government to engage in any sort of long-term uh, projects. And I mean, this is obviously a practical dilemma to, to all those engaged in undoing coups, because um, 
they do not want coaches to install themselves for longer periods of time and reward them for um, you know, disrespecting constitutional provisions and democratic principles, etc. But at the same time, simply re-establishing an institutional system and its form, knowing that the system lacked a, a serious foundation before, will not be very, a very sustainable solution. Now, this is sort of the, the practical dilemma, but in my, in my book, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that it's important to nevertheless think of sort of this, these sort of limits of the approach. It's, it's nevertheless important to think of these interventions as effective in terms of, uh, in the sense of sort of having an effect. They are effective exactly because they depoliticize an otherwise um, or initially very political moment with a lot of potential for transformative processes but this transformative potential is effectively killed by the technical approach to re-establishing constitutional order um, understood as the re-establishment of a recognizable government and this is what i found really quite fascinating sort of the level of prescriptiveness um that the interveners were willing to have um and i was really pleased that you you know again, as you spoke about right at the beginning, you don't take this for granted. You sort of poke at it and go, hang on a second, let's think about some of the things that are happening here. Um, And I appreciated that you spoke about in the book kind of how Madagascar, events in Madagascar influence the world and how the world is influencing things in Madagascar. So to take the second one first before we come back to the initial one, um, what impact do you talk about in the book um, that the international ideal, the kind of prescriptive norm in a lot of ways of liberal democracy had in the actual reality in Madagascar? I argue in the book that the ideal of the liberal polity, that's how I, how I um, term it, that this ideal is an important driver behind post-coup interventions, in this case, the post-coup intervention in Madagascar. And it explains much of the practices of uh, intervening actors. To start with the condemnation of a coup, that that is sort of already a way in which this liberal, or this ideal of the liberal polity is upheld, but also the concrete practices, these inclusive negotiations, this constant search for um, inclusive uh, solutions, meaning including various strands of the of the political elite, um, but. Um, so yeah, as a justification, the, the aim of having elections, etc. So as a justification, and a dr- it's an important driver um, in this in these post coup interventions, um, and the re-establishment of constitutional order itself also served to re-establish this ideal. But the reality or the practice of this ideal is, of course, very non-ideal. So when I say that the liberal democracy an important impact on the political realities in Madagascar. I'm not saying that that liberal democracy was effectively established, but that it served to legitimate a whole range of practices and goals, which, however, in the end, ended up in political reality within, or in a political reality, which, which, still, which is still very far away from that uh, liberal ideal. Hmm. And what about impact or influence the other way? How did intervention in Madagascar impact regional norms, international power relations? I, I show in the book that um, the sort of impact on the international was in fact much more sort of transformative than the impact on um, on sort of politics or order uh, on the island. So whereas I show that... Um, with regard to the politics on the island, um, it, it kind of cemented a lot of the um, sort of the, the the political conflicts, the the general um, 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 cleavages also, um, and the and the sort of the um, the strictness of the political system that was basically cemented by the way that the that the post coup uh, situation was was approached, and whereas. The other is, is true for the international. It has a much more transformative impact on the international. Um, it, it basically contributed to reconfigure orders and, and power relations internationally, much more so than on the um, on the continent. And I, I show that in, in, in sort of several regards. Um, on the one hand, um, the situation in Madagascar concretely served many interveners to identify sort of problems in Madagascar which were then 
um, transformed into sort of future, you know, projects of international aid or, or support. Um, this is, for instance, reconciliation, security sector reform, the general uh, socioeconomic situation. All these were identified as as problematic by the various international actors who came to be involved in uh, in the situation, and were then sort of transformed into future um, problems. So the the post coup intervention, um, sorry, the future projects. Um, so the post coup intervention and the and the presence of many uh, international and regional actors actually. Uh, sharpen sort of the the international uh, gaze or sense for the problematic aspects of of, of politics and society in Madagascar, um, and made and in fact made intervention something much more in, enduring uh, on the on the island. So the presence of the international in Madagascar and um, became um, much more much more visible and much more much broader since since then. This is sort of one way in which post-coup interventions have effects on, on regional and international dynamics. And the second aspect is, um, or the second way which I explore is um, that for several international and regional actors, and here I'm speaking specifically about sort of organizations or regional uh, organizations, um, these experiences in Madagascar and as part of the sort of post-coup intervention and on the island um, we're used to explore new fields of, of competence, of expertise, of, of even formal authority. I'm showing this, for instance, with the, uh, the Commission for the Indian Ocean, the COE, um, for which the crisis in Madagascar was the starting point to elaborate a, an, an organizational profile on political cooperation. It, political cooperation, um, promotion of democratic norms, conflict resolution, all these issues did not play a role for the for the COE before. But the situation in Madagascar really led to the um, led the organization to develop a whole profile and actually um, develop a, a formal mandate to become involved in similar issues in the future. Um, the same in a way applies to other um, regional institutions like the African or SADC, for whom um, the, the the experiences in Madagascar served as sort of um, laboratory for sort of new you know new policies post-conflict reconstruction for instance in the case of the uh, of the African Union which um, which was a very sort of new policy at the time um, uh, as well as um, um, as liaison offices um, with a much more sort of formal and broader political mandate all these were a sort of um, areas in which these two organizations develop new organizational competencies and actually formal powers, um, uh, which directly stem from the from these experiences in Madagascar. I want to, as we come to the end of the interview, um, think about kind of what we spoke about at the beginning, right? The idea that um, there are so many more coups now happening in African Union countries, um, even when then when there were um, in 2009, when events in Madagascar were unfolding. Um, what can we take from this book to understand current coups, the rise of coups, um, the African Union's response to coups? Um, I imagine you have rather a lot of expertise on this now. What would you say? I think we can. Um, I think the current sort of situation, the, the current coups are um, quite different from the coups that I discussed in my in, in, in the book. Because what we see currently is um, putches that are sort of much more effectively. Um, defending themselves against the African unions, or in this case also ECOWAS's attempts to undo the coup. So we really see at the moment, I think, that um, the, the the problems this policy has and um, in compelling actors to to comply with uh, with the with the framework which I which I elaborated at the beginning. Um, and nevertheless, I think the, the current wave, um, especially in, in West Africa, the, the recent cases um, of Burkina, Mali, uh, and, and Guinea-Conakry, they really demonstrate the short-sightedness of previous post-coup interventions because all three countries had experience over the past eight, seven, seven to nine years. Um, they had already sort of undergone 
similar efforts to re-establish constitutional order after coups. Um, and the fact that uh, after such a short period of time, um, the situation sort of re-emerges and much of the um, actually of the of the sort of general political problems that um, also led to this quite strong public support for coups um, that we see currently, um, much of these uh, much of these problems were sort of were at the core of the debates back then as well, and and these are exactly the kind of um, broader political questions that are being excluded from the uh, from the way in which the the African Union has approached um, uh, these coups before. So this technical um, uh, approach, which I describe in the book and, 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 and which I try to explain now in the interview as well, um, this technical approach, which which depoliticizes these situations. I think this is um, surely not the only sort of you know reason why we currently see the, these coups, but it it, it should definitely um, provide enough fodder to think about. Um, uh, you know, sort of reforming that strategy and not not responding to these coups now in exactly the same time. So not focusing just on the form uh, of liberal democracy and sort of um, uh, in terms of elections and an elected government um, and uh, and sort of doing away with all the sort of the, the the content and the question of what should that democracy serve and whom. Um, that is sort of one aspect I think that um, that is important, and the second one is really that um, the the anti coup policy um, and and the norm is a a reactive norm. It it reacts and it's it's specifically tailored to react to these interruptions of what for the AU is sort of um, political normalcy, and what is missing from this norm is the preventive aspect of. Um, sort of looking at all these other instances uh, in which sort of political systems do not run in the way, but might not be um, officially um, <clears throat> and against sort of constitutional provisions. This is one aspect. Um, but it also shows us that um, in, in several ways, uh, sort of the anti-coup policy has a definition of what counts as unconstitutional a change of government, which is quite narrow and which excludes many other um, situations that are actually unconstitutional. In particular, this this whole debate about um, constitutional revisions, which um, in the case of Guinea-Conakry played an important role, and um, and this is this is something that is uh, that has been a big debate in the development of the anti-coup policy, but which um, uh, apparently never really got. Um, the the sort of sufficient uh, political support within the organization. So this narrowness in terms of which situations does this norm actually take into account as problematic and sort of worth um, in, in intervention in terms of sort of diplomatic effort or in terms of um, diplomatic attention and in terms of uh, public condemnation. I think this narrowness really fires back these days um, because we see that uh, many... Um, um, people in the countries concerned really, um, really criticize these organizations for their silence uh, in such situations, but then for their appearance in other situations, um, uh, uh, which might sort of contravene uh, the, the the demands or political uh, uh, ambitions of uh, of the um, of of that time. Well. For my last question, and hopefully not the most challenging, <laughs> um, now that this book is obviously it's out, it's available, people can read it. Um, is there anything you're working on now or next that you'd like to give our listeners a sneak peek of? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, as I said at the beginning, when I started, I thought that um, I'm, I'm, I, I still I, I was fascinated by this anti-coup policy, but I I honestly did not count on. Um, coups as a phenomenon to be as important as they are today. I I I I always <laughs> thought that this is an important aspect of politics on the continent, but these days, obviously, um, um, uh, it is even more important than I than I um, expected. So this whole uh, topic uh, continues to um, uh, to be 
an important part of my work. Um, but I also developed into sort of, or I, I started focusing on, on two, I think, aspects that are kind of evolving from that, um, from that research uh, in general. And that is the first one um, that I'm really trying to understand um, maybe more theoretically um, the way the African Union and other African regional organizations um, exert power um, and how they affect politics and order and life on the continent. So to really understand and theorize about it, I think is an important aspect also in terms of how African experience are used to theorize international relations and, and the sort of the functioning of the international. Um, this is sort of one way in which I've uh, sort of gone since uh, since then. And the second aspect is um, I've started a, a, a rather big research project, in fact, on on local perceptions of uh, post-coup interventions. And that was um, clearly inspired by my work in Madagascar. So um, we basically look into how, um, uh, in inverted commas, ordinary citizens experience and perceive these interventions. Um, it's, it's a project funded by the German Research Foundation, um, and I'm doing that with a wonderful multinational team of researchers in uh, Germany and Burkina Faso and in the Gambia. So these are the two case study countries in which we work. Um, yeah, and um, so we've been uh, busy um, uh, doing the field research and now um, busy <laughs> sort of publishing first results. Uh, and I think this is uh, one aspect that is uh, again, also in light of the current uh, wave of coups, uh, increasingly important to understand um, sort of local reactions, but, but, but also really broader going beyond the, the capital to understand how citizens actually experience these and, and, and these interventions and, and what they expect from um, organizations like the African Union or ECOWAS uh, to do in such situations. Um, I think, um, yeah, this, this, this clearly came out of... Uh, uh, of my research uh, in Madagascar, um, and yeah, this will probably continue uh, keeping me busy for the uh, for the next uh, at least year. Uh, and if the listeners are um, interested, um, they might uh, follow this in the weeks and months to come. Wonderful. Well, very exciting. Thank you for telling us about that. Um, we've been speaking to Antonia, who's been telling us about her book titled Undoing Coups, the African Union and Post-Coup Intervention in Madagascar, which was published by Bloomsbury. Um, Antonia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.